In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. On July 3rd, 1775, the Second Continental Congress called George Washington to become the Lieutenant General of the Continental Army. Everybody until that point had served individually for the individual colonies. There were militias that were called up in towns and regions and by the colonies themselves. And of course those that were representatives of the colonies in the Congress were each uh, called by their own colony. So there was no one who was called or serving for the whole uh, nation until George Washington was called. You might say he was the first federal employee. He was the first person who the whole colonies could agree upon to lead them and who people from all of the different colonies would follow in battle. And of course this was a a great call uh, by George Washington and he had many victories and endured many hardships and uh, many times was assailed by people at home and abroad that he was in danger of becoming a tyrant. George III said it over and over again that they were just trading one tyrant for another. That George Washington would never lay down his arms. That he would become a a kind of a a tyrant commander, a dictator himself. And of course of all of the um, miracles of Washington's public life, the greatest miracle is that he went home. After eight years of battle for our country, at the end of the Revolutionary War, when uh, victory was won, he laid down his arms and he went back to Mount Vernon to his farm. And this is a miracle. As we've seen in history before him or after him, there is no equal, no one who had the kind of power and authority that he did that laid it down more willingly. Indeed, again, six years later, his country called him after we found that the Articles of Confederation were weak and that we needed a constitution and there needed to be a president of our new country. There was only one person that they could call, only one person that the whole country would get behind. George Washington was elected unanimously and he served two terms. And of all of the miracles that happened in those first two terms, the fact that the Constitution was passed and ratified by all the colonies, that they were able to govern themselves, which all the nations of the world said was impossible, the most amazing miracle that happened again at the end of that second term was that George Washington went home. He had the humility, he had the humility to serve and then to lay down the authority that he had. He had faith in his countrymen that they would be able to rule themselves and that humility is so rare that when we look through the scriptures there are not too many examples of that same kind of humility and leadership and indeed what we see is the opposite we see such pride and arrogance among the leaders of the nation of Israel that it brings them to certain destruction especially when we read the lives of the great kings when we get to Solomon and we see his son Rehoboam Rehoboam's pride and his arrogance leads to civil war because Rehoboam does not show humility and does not allow his countrymen to lay down their work and to 
uh, go back to their homes, they mutiny and there's a civil war and the northern kingdom of Israel is divided from the southern kingdom of Judah and they have uh, years of civil war. That pride and arrogance continues in the leaders of the northern kingdom of Israel until they're taken over by the Assyrians. And that same pride and arrogance becomes a hallmark of the kings of Judah. And finally, even though the prophets tell them over and over again, the Babylonians will destroy us, they will destroy the temple, this is the time when we need to lay down arms and to submit ourselves in humility, they would not hear that call. And the Babylonians indeed raised the city of Jerusalem, knocked down the walls, and destroyed the temple and the sanctuary of God, where for hundreds of years the priests had served and worship and sacrifice to the Most High God. Ezekiel is one of those priests. He was of the family of priests. And Ezekiel, along with Daniel and Jeremiah, are this uh, group of men who are standing up and who are listening to the Lord and who are proclaiming him in season and out. Imagine what it is for Ezekiel to lose the temple of God, to lose this place of sacrifice and worship. What was a priest to do without a tabernacle? There was no role for him to play. He was a man out of place. He was a man without a country. He was a priest without a temple. He was without home. He was was uh, without any kind of a purpose or meaning and yet the Lord meets him in this foreign place among these foreign powers in the city uh, of, um, of Babylon and the, and the great empire of Babylon the Lord calls him and says you're more thou than a priest you are my prophet and I'm going to give you the words to speak to my people and the Lord cuts right to the chase he tells Ezekiel what's going to happen he says you're going to preach my words and they're not going to listen to you because they're a rebellious people isn't this amazing that the Lord knows that his people are rebellious and that they're not going to respond to his proclamations and yet he sends Ezekiel anyways? That is our God of love. It's a very important thing that we see that the Lord uh, knows that we will be rebellious and yet he seeks us constantly always and he sends Ezekiel and he says uh, you're not going to uh, say my words dependent upon their reaction. And that's a very important thing for us in our lives to remember. That we don't speak the words of God. We don't proclaim His truth. We don't say the things that He's given us to say with an eye to how it's going to be received by those people that may be rebellious. It's still our job to say the words of God and to call people to repentance and humility whether they're going to respond or not. And so this is the role that Ezekiel takes up. Of course, uh, the people of God finally do start to submit in humility a little bit, and they are allowed to go back into Jerusalem, and they rebuild the city walls, and they rebuild the tabernacle. And it's in this, simple, this second temple period uh, that we see Jesus. There's the second temple that's been restored, and uh, King Herod had uh, brought many uh, wonderful gifts to the temple, and it had been restored to this great magnificence and beauty. And again, sacrifices were being offered in Jerusalem in the temple at the time of Jesus. But the people of God in that place knew that something was wrong. Even though the temple had been restored, they knew that Herod was not supposed to be king. He was an Edomite. He wasn't of the line of David. They knew that the Romans were not supposed to be over them, that they weren't supposed to be subject to these pagan authorities. They knew that they had been experiencing demonic possession, that they had been experiencing illness, that there had been all this trouble in their midst 
midst. They knew that things were not right, even though the Lord had restored the temple and that worship. And they were hungry for a leader that was going to take them out of that place. But the leader that they thought was going to come was going to be this great general or hero. He wasn't going to be a poor neighbor of Nazareth. So when Jesus comes and he seems to be fulfilling all the promises of the Messiah, he seems to have all the power and all the signs that are uh, supposed to be coming with the Messiah, they say, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. And this is so often the experience of people when they hear the word of God, they say, everything has got to make perfect sense to me. You've got to answer all of my questions. You've got to fulfill all of my answers. You've got to bring everything to my satisfaction or else I won't receive the word of God. People set up so many barriers for themselves and so many questions to keep themselves in this radical doubt from having the faith of God. And this is exactly what Jesus's neighbors in Nazareth do. They are juxtaposed for us. They're put right side by side with, you'll remember last chapter in chapter 5, Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, and the woman with the issue of blood. Do you remember them from last chapter? Jairus is this ruler of the synagogue. He's this man of authority. But instead of going to Jesus as a man of authority and commanding him or being proud or arrogant, what does Jairus do to receive the healing for his daughter? He submits himself in humility to Jesus. He goes and he bows down before him and he pleads, Son of God, have mercy on me and my daughter. What does the woman with the issue of blood do? Does she go up and does she offer some special sacrifice or present herself as somebody with authority or with arrogance or pride? No. She says, all I have to do is touch the hem of his garment. Does she say, I have to know where he's from. I have to know who his parents are. I have to know who his brothers and sisters are. I have to have all these questions answered for me. She doesn't care about any of that stuff. She just knows that she's going to be healed and knows that all that she needs to do is touch the hem of his garment. So this radical faith is juxtaposed to these people that say, you haven't answered my questions. And what happens to those people? They don't receive any of the healing of God. Of course not. They've closed the door. And God's a gentleman. He's not going to force himself on them. He's not going to say, you have to be healed no matter what. I'm going to make you submit to me in authority. He's not going to do that. And so isn't that Jesus doesn't have the power to heal the people of Nazareth. It's not that he doesn't have the strength or might within himself. It's that they haven't submitted with faith and humility to the power of God. We know that this is the key to the universe, at the very center of human history, at the very center of the world. The key that unlocks all of the power and the grace of God is the cross. It's the cross. That Jesus, with complete humility, though he is God... Though he has all the reason for pride, though he has all the reason to come with strength and power and glory, he submits himself in poverty and humility and sacrifices himself for us. This is the key to unlocking all of the grace and power of God is to, with humility, to lay down our lives. And so this is what Jesus shows us over and over again. That this is the key with which we're going to unlock that power. And because the people of Nazareth would not grasp that key, just like the people of Jerusalem a few years later, who take him before Pilate, they don't receive the blessings of God because of their pride and their arrogance. And then we would think that these first generation Christians would have understood this in full and fullness of its uh, power and message. And yet, no more than 20 years later... St. Paul is in Macedonia writing a letter to the Corinthians, the people of Corinth, and what's going on in Corinth? They again have gone back to this pride and this arrogance, and they've said, you know what we need in an apostle? 
We need somebody really great, right? We need somebody with the right clothes. We need somebody with the right pedigree. We need somebody who's got these great visions, who comes in great power. We don't want this poor Paul, this guy who keeps getting uh, robbed and keeps getting shipwrecked and he's short and he's ugly and he's not well spoken and uh, all these things. He's not the guy that we're looking for. And St. Paul writes to them and he says, I could give you my curriculum vitae of miracles and of visions. I could tell you all these wonderful things about myself and I wouldn't be bragging because it's the truth. And when you tell the truth, it's not bragging. He says, yet the power that I have is not in this greatness. The power that I have is in weakness. And he even points to his own physical weakness, this thorn in his side, in his flesh. He says, that is the weakness that I have before God that, again, is the key that unlocks the power of God within me. He says it's the weakness that allows me to submit to the Father. He says that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I'm glad of my weakness. And he says I'm content with, content with. This is great. He's content. Content with insults? Are we content to be insulted? For hardships, for persecutions, for calamities? Are we content? Because if we're not, we're not allowing the power of God to be opened in our lives. It's in weakness that that key to that door of heaven is opened and that we're able to receive the power that healed Jairus' daughter and the woman with the issue of blood. It's in humility and in laying down our lives that we receive grace. A little bit after the Babylonian exile in about 450 BC, a continental way in the ancient Republic of Rome was a great general by the name of Cincinnatus. And Cincinnatus was known as a great military leader but he was at his home on his farm when the Romans were being attacked by their neighbors. And they saw that they were going to be destroyed. And they looked around for a general to lead them, and there was none in the army at that time. But they knew that Cincinnatus was the kind of man who could lead them to victory. And so the leaders of the Roman Republic went out to Cincinnatus's farm, and they begged him. And they said, we will give you the title of emperor. We will bow before you if you become our general and save us from this calamity. And so Cincinnatus lays down his uh, oxen and his plow, and he takes up his sword, and he goes into the city of Rome, and he becomes emperor this early time, hundreds of years before Caesar. And he fights for the city of Rome, and he defeats the enemies. And at the end of the victory, the people of Rome say, You're our emperor. You're our king. We'll treat you as a god on earth. And Cincinnatus lays down his sword, and lays down his helmet, and he goes back to his farm. And Cincinnatus becomes a hero for George Washington and his fellow generals and majors and corporals and all the men that were around him in his army and they form a society they formed a lifelong society the society of Cincinnatus because they knew the temptation of power 
they knew the temptation of arrogance. They knew the temptation of thinking, I don't have enough. And I'm needed. I'm special. They can't do it without me. They knew the temptation that was before them. And they had to have a hero like Cincinnatus before them so that they would continue in humility and be able to lay down their arms when the time was right. It was no accident that Washington went home because he had had a hero the whole time he was serving as general. And if we are going to lay down our lives, if we're going to live lives of humility, if we're going to be content with hardship, we have to have a hero. We have to have an example. And we have examples in the lives of the saints. We have examples in the Most High God, who rather than coming in power and arrogance, came in weakness and humility to lay down his life for us. We're colonists. We're colonists of the kingdom of God. The colonies of the kingdom of God have gone around the whole earth. They're meeting right now, at this very moment, in mud huts, in communist prisons, behind closed doors in North Africa, and they're proclaiming the word of God in humility and in contentment with hardship. May we be colonists of the kingdom of God here today, ready to show others how to unlock the windows and the doors of heaven in humility by laying down our lives for those that we love.